Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. It's a joy to be with you. We are going to continue in our study of Ephesians, so you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 right now. Go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 1. And as you turn there, I want you to think with me where we're at in the text. We're at a prayer. Paul has been expounding high theology. He's been giving you God's view of salvation, and we turn to prayer. And so as he turns to prayer, when he's considering the greatness of God, as he turns to prayer, I ask you, do you pray as you ought? When you pray, are you communing with God? What do you say to God? How do you make relationship with God? Do you find yourself faithfully praying through the acronym for your prayers, ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication? Do you find that your prayers draw you closer to God? Do they help you know Him? Or are they late Friday night pleas of all the things for which you need God to help you? What's going on with your prayers? Do they make you know God more? Do they cause you to have a relationship with God? They should. And you must expect that through prayer that you will know God and that God wants to know you through prayer. Not that he needs to know more of you, but that you need to know more of him in the way that you communicate with him. God will make himself known to you in this relationship. You don't relate any more to God than when you are praying to him. Praying to him like he truly is your father in heaven who is listening intently to you. Martin Luther says to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. John Bunyan says, to pray rightly, you must make God your hope, stay, and all. Right prayer, he says, sees nothing substantial or worth being concerned about except God. And I fear that far too often we make many other things the focus of our prayer as opposed to, is this my time to relate to God? Do I really want to know him more in what I'm saying to him? Some, however, they make the charge against us of our prayers you know them well. If God predetermined everything that's going to happen, then why pray? What's the purpose of prayer? What's the point of your prayer if God knows your prayers and everything that he's already going to do to answer your prayers? There are skeptics and haters of ours out there and of our faith that say there's nothing to gain in your silly prayers to God. Is that what you believe? Meanwhile, John, the apostle, records for us that in heaven, as Jesus took the title deed to the earth from the Father's right hand in Revelation 5-7, that in 5-8, four living creatures and 24 elders fell down on their face before Jesus, the Lamb of God, each holding a harp and a bowl of incense, which if you think about it, it's a little difficult to do to hold a harp and a bowl of incense, but they did, and they fell down face first in front of Christ, the Lamb of God, and John makes clear that the bowls of incense that they fell down with, that they're holding in their hand, they're filled with what? The prayers of the saints. They're filled with the prayers of the saints. Can you imagine that? You know, at my house, we have these uh, candles, and the candles that are lit at my house that my wife loves so much are warm tobacco smoke. And I love the smell of a warm campfire. I, I love to put those together. I love to be there for that. The smell of heaven. The smell that God loves is the smell of good prayer. Are you offering that to him? Good prayer knows that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases, Psalm 115.3. That God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, even to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 
28. Good prayer knows that our greatest needs are spiritual and that God must be the one to act in his power according to his free will to do inside of man what we can't and won't do for ourselves. Good prayer then has to be understood as Calvinistic prayer. Asking God to do things, not asking man to do things. Ephesians 1 is where we've come to. We come to what I call peak prayer in Ephesians 1. Pinnacle prayer. Where Paul petitions God to give spiritual growth through knowledge. He's asking God to give this. God, give more of yourself. Relate more to your people. And it's here, Paul petitions God to give spiritual growth through knowledge. Not based in some kind of a basic or or bland knowledge, but the blessing of superior knowledge. Even the blessing of relational knowledge, the height of knowledge, peak knowledge, pinnacle knowledge. So read the text with me now and let's consider Paul's request and the need for believers to get from God the blessing of superior knowledge. And let's think through how this blessing of superior knowledge relates fundamentally, foundationally to how you relate to God. So hold on to that as we're thinking about superior knowledge and a prayer for believers to get something that they can't conceive of themselves. Let's read the text, and as we consider the blessing of superior knowledge, we're going to read from verse 15 all the way through 23. Paul's going to open up with these three words, for this reason. And when he says this, I want you to remember that he's looking back at verses 3 through 14, where he talked about God, God's predetermination of you to elect you, redeem you, and give you an inheritance. He says, for this reason, I too having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having already illuminated the eyes of your hearts so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are studying Ephesians here at Community Bible Church, plowing through verse by verse, expositionally, trusting that the sovereignty of God spelled out week by week, verse by verse, is exactly what your life needs. And in chapter 1, we join Paul as he went on this 12-verse, 202-word blessing explosion in verses 3 through 14, explaining how God predetermined our election, redemption, and our inheritance. I call this God's view of salvation. We're going to get in chapter 2, man's view of salvation. This is God's view of salvation. This is how God did everything to elect, redeem, and and inherit a people for himself and to show our inheritance to us. And Paul turns then from this praise of God in verses 3 through 14. He turns to prayer to God that God's work would continue in this regeneration and election and our inheritance. And we see this in verses 15 through 23. So we started a sermon series called Blessing the Blessed last week. 
That's what Paul's doing here. Paul is the blesser. He's blessing the blessed. He's putting this blessing on the believers in Ephesus. How do you bless the believers who have everything? You pray for them. You pray for them. It wasn't enough for Paul to explain the greatness of God in salvation, praising God for the greatness that he has in salvation. Paul wants now to pray this peak knowledge, this top knowledge gets into the hearts and the minds of the believers that he just explained all these truths to. How do you get this top knowledge, this superior view of God's salvation, how do you get it into people? You pray. That's what he does here. He asks God. And why? Why does Paul ask God? Because he knows that the Lord Jesus Christ is building a glorious church. And if you're going to build a glorious church, you have to have your people understand these truths. They're so essential. You saw the building of the church in chapter 1, verse 23. We'll get there in in two weeks. If you are a Christian, you live uniquely tied to the local church in membership. How dare you if you don't? You must. We don't live Lone Ranger Christian lives. We are not single brick spiritual houses. We are stacked together. Your spiritual health, life, vitality, love, and growth are twisted up and bound up together with Christ and the church where the greatest truths of God will be washed over you in preaching and in fellowship when brothers and sisters live this stuff out right in front of your face. In the church, you will stand beneath a Multnomah Falls waterfall of God's knowledge You need the blessing of superior knowledge, peak knowledge, and you get it from the church where we stand on the authority of the word of God. No, this isn't when I tell you, for your $50 donation today, I'll send that knowledge to you. That's not what's going to (laughs) happen. I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, that you can receive that knowledge today. Just raise that hand, and I'll come and get that knowledge right to you. No, we're not going to do that either. No, in fact, all we need to do is read and explain the Bible. No gimmicks, no deceitful scheming and trickery of men. It's just explain the text of God. Jesus builds his church on the power of the word of God and the knowledge of God going into the hearts and minds of sinners like you and me, giving us his worldview, how he sees things. And in that, his awesome plan to save you from the slave market of sin that you've been trapped in. That's what he's offering us in this letter. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a church growth letter as much as it is a glory to God letter. Believers will grow and churches will grow when they are brought up to peak knowledge of God, bringing great glory to God. And in this prayer at the end of Ephesians 1, we find Paul praying the blessing of superior knowledge. Paul's prayer ascends three peaks of God's knowledge which secure our identity and set our eyes on Christ. Let me read that again because that's where we're going. I want to make sure that you don't miss this. Paul's prayer ascends to three peaks of God's knowledge, which secure our identity and set our eyes on Christ. How much do you need your identity fixed in Christ and the promises that God has made for your calling and your inheritance? How much do you need your eyes fixed on Christ? So we're going to see these three peaks. Peak number one, God's calling. Peak number two, God's inheritance. Peak number three, God's power. You want to pray a wonderful prayer for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray these three peaks of superior knowledge. Get into them in the power of God. This is what Paul wants for believers in his peak knowledge prayer. 
In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul begins his prayer with affirmation. He says to these brothers and sisters in Christ, I know you. I know that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have faith in him and love for all the saints. And then in verse 16 and 17, Paul lets them know that he is praying actively for them, continually praying for them, that God would do a supernatural work in them, giving them heart attitudes, or as the text says, a spirit ready to receive wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. But not just any knowledge, specifically knowledge, superior knowledge of God's plan and salvation, his inheritance and his power. Knowledge that creates the basis of relationship built on certainties, certainties that are superior to any knowledge that you've ever had. And God's giving of knowledge has already begun for these believers. They have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. It is the case that you don't ask a five-year-old to drive the car to church. They're not equipped to do that. But a day comes when that five-year-old is a 15-year-old, and they are then able to be equipped and trained and ready to drive that car to church. God made the Ephesians able. These people are God's elect. He did place his spirit inside of them. They have faith in Jesus. They have love for all the saints. And look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, having already illuminated the eyes of your heart. That's what the text says. The the, the Greek word there, having already illuminated, is a participle. It's the Greek verb photizo. And it's saying that illumination or enlightenment have already happened. It's seen in the perfect tense of this participle. Enlightenment was an activity, brothers and sisters, done for these believers in the past. It's happened. Enlightenment has happened to them. And it's happened with continuing results. It's the perfect tense of this participle. Also, it's being spoken in the passive voice. And what does the passive voice always tell us? It tells us that something happened on you, something happened to you, that you weren't active in doing something, that you were the recipient of something that happened on you. Illumination is not something that you do, but positively something God does in you supernaturally. You're passive in this. The perfect tense and the passive voice are best communicated, as I've seen this week, in the English Standard Version and the King James Version, for that matter. Having been enlightened, Paul knows God will offer peak knowledge about himself to these blessed saints. The perfect tense, then, and the passive voice of this participle declare that God has done a work and is continuing to do a work in these believers. Do you believe that about your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? That God already did a work in the past and it has continuing effects to now, even to the extent that they can understand greater, superior knowledge of God. I sure hope that you would treasure even the simplicity of this participle in the text. How comfortable know that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. How much comfort is there in knowing that you don't save yourself? God saves. It puts all the onus and all the emphasis and all the glory on God. Paul knows this truth so well, especially when you consider his own powerful conversion. He was the ultimate enemy of Christ, and yet think of how powerfully Paul himself was saved. So Paul has expectations of what happens to God's saved, God's redeemed, God's chosen, God's elect. As we see next in the text, the grand purpose statement of Paul's prayer spells this out. Paul prays, God has illuminated your eyes so that, so that, and at the word so that, we see a purpose clause is coming. God has illuminated your your eyes so that, what? 
so that you will know. Oh, there's strength in this. This is what he wants. This is the focus and emphasis of his prayer. So that you will know. And it is here that he takes this prayer on a journey to three mountain peaks of God's superior knowledge. We're going to head up these three mountain peaks of the knowledge of God. And certainly, this is a bit of a recap of verses 3 through 14. He takes his knowledge from 3 through 14 and he twists it and says, I'm going to pray what I just spoke to you. I see in my mind a set of mountains that beg you to climb up them consecutively. You might consider these mountains lined up and ready to summit like Mount Hood and Mount Rainier and Mount Baker. Down on the central coast of California in Morro Bay, there's a series of mountains called the Nine Sisters of Morro, and they stretch from the coast all the way inland to San Luis Obispo, 15 miles, Nine Sisters of Morro. My kids and I have hiked these mountains on several occasions, and what you really appreciate about them is when you get to the top, you appreciate the view. Let's have Paul take us up the first peak of God's knowledge that we might capture the grandest view of salvation as we see point number one in your notes. Point number one, God's calling. God's calling. Mountain peak number one, God's calling. When you think of calling, maybe it's helpful if I put an image in your head. Suppose with me in your mind, suppose with me that you're one of ten children. Some of you are. <laughs> but suppose with me that you're one of ten children. And today is the oldest brother's birthday. And mom is in the kitchen making a wonderful dinner and obviously a big chocolate birthday cake. She gets finished with dinner and what's she going to ask you to do? You're standing there next to her. What does she need you to do? She needs you to call the kids in for dinner. Call them in for dinner. So what do you do? Of course, you open the front door, and at the top of your lungs, you yell out, dinner's ready. But what if the kids aren't there? This is a general call. This is a general call to everyone who is a child, the children of mom, to come to the house because dinner is ready. It's prepared to be served. We've got a birthday, folks. Get in here. This is a general call. But suppose that none of the brothers and sisters come running, and not even the oldest one comes running. What happens next? This special birthday dinner can't happen without the birthday boy. Mom is going to direct you to go get the brothers and sisters while she herself goes out specifically and especially to bring home the birthday boy for his celebration. Mom is not going to go out and offer the birthday boy, however, a general call. She's going to use a special call, an effectual call. Some of you are mothers here. Have you ever used a, an effectual call to get your children home? I would imagine so. It doesn't happen in a first-name-only call. It's not, Oliver, come home for dinner. It's not that. If you're, you're going to really call your child, you say, Oliver, Gerald, come home now. Right? There's an intensity to this call. You might even find it the case that you used all three names of that person's. You, you know what a special call that is when you get all three names shouted out at you. But more than the shouting, you know that if Mama Bear wants her boy home, she's going to go hunt him down. She knows her son so well, and she knows all the places where he can be found. And she will go to him and find him and make sure that her son gets the party for which she has created for him exclusively. And if she gets to share that with the other ones, then so be it. The other child is running around and trying to find the other brothers and sisters. And if they come and answer that call, the general call that he's going to put out, that's great. But there's a special and effectual call that mom is going to put on her birthday son. The same is true of God's calling of us. He has a special and effectual call that cannot be resisted. It is an efficacious call, which is to say that it does exactly what it was intended to do. Calling sinners 
into the presence of Christ's marvelous light. That's the call that you've received if you are saved, if you are God's elect, if you're his chosen. Both calls, the general call and the special call, reveal God's righteousness. Only, however, God's special call leads to salvation. God's calling is the first of three peaks of God's knowledge, which Paul continually prays that the believers would know. And we see this in verse 18 in the text where he says, having already illuminated the eyes of your heart so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Paul's aim is adding knowledge onto these Ephesians. Paul prays to God, let them know. Father, let them know. And peak knowledge begins with a climb to the top of Mount Hope of God's calling. So that's where we're headed to. What is biblical hope, brothers and sisters? Is it the hope that the world has? The world defines hope in terms of feelings of expectation or desire for something to happen. Worldly hope is lottery-style hope. I hope I win the lottery. You can see lottery ticket sales everywhere. I've heard it said of the lottery that it's a tax on those who failed math. <laughs> lottery hope and all worldly hope is this, though. Lottery hope and worldly hope is this. It is all without certainty. I hope you treasure the word certainty. Biblical hope is certain. Paul is praying that their knowledge grows in its certainty. And certainty of what? Certainty of his calling. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. What we see in the text here of Ephesians, and even here in Romans 8, is not the general calling of God telling all men to repent. That's not what we're looking at in these texts. We should understand that it is our job as brothers and sisters in Christ to tell the world the, the general call of God, repent and believe. That's your job. All of you, you're created in the image and likeness of God. Repent and believe. That's the general call. And it, is, it affords righteousness. It is righteous to say those words. It is righteous for God to ask us to say those words. But what we see in the text in Ephesians and here in Romans 8 is God's effectual call, his efficacious call, I want to give you another analogy. Pastor John MacArthur paints for us. It's a great one. He speaks of, uh, the imagery comes from that of a, a scrap metal salvage yard. So just cast your mind to a scrap metal salvage yard for a second. Salvage yards, he says, use giant electromagnets to lift and partially sort scrap metal. When the magnet is turned on, a tremendous magnetic force draws all the ferrous metals that are near it, but has no effect on other metals such as aluminum and brass. In a similar way, God's elective will irresistibly draws and calls to himself those whom he has predetermined to love and forgive while having no effect on those whom he has not. The basis for the certainty of Pastor John's claims come from the text of Ephesians chapter 1 and texts like Romans 8 where you find yourself now. I want you to hold on to and treasure this certainty of his calling as well. It will help if we read Romans 8, verses 28 to 30 together. As Paul presents the order of salvation and the certainty, again, the certainty of God's calling. Paul says, and we know that God, who, who made Paul know? Where did his knowledge come from? Think about it. Did he make this up? 
No, no, he was given to this on the road to Damascus. Look, look again. And we know, certainty, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are love, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predetermined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The calling of God on our lives is our confidence. It is our certainty. What a treasure to know. That this gift of the knowledge of Jesus Christ crucified to pay for sin, even mine, past, present, and future, is not something that I stake a claim in myself as if I've done something. But it is a free gift that God has extended to me. God, you could say, is the head coach of our soccer team. We are the players that he has called and selected to play for him. Can you choose of your free will to go play for the Seattle Sounders? I asked you to try it. <laughs> you won't find success. Were we star high school soccer players for God that he saw, and he thought, I have to have those ones to my, for myself? Is that why he called us, because we were already stars at soccer? Not at all. God is the soccer coach who calls the weak. He's the coach who calls the lame. He's the coach who calls the broken and the drug addicts. How many coaches in our society are calling those people? Our God is. Because he's so confident and certain in his own ability, not only to call these to himself, but moreover to make them valuable to his team for now in his church and for all of eternity. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. And as you do, I would just ask you this question. Can you sense how critical it is to know the hope of his calling that he placed on you? Do you sense that? Is that something that you treasure? This knowledge is pinnacle knowledge, mountain peak knowledge, brothers and sisters, because of the certainty it claims for us in our identity. How great is it to have the coach give you the team jersey with your name on it? It beats the heck out of going to um, Sports Authority, buying one and slapping your own name on it. How great is it to know he puts you in the starting lineup and he wants you to play? What are the chances for failure if you're called on this team? What is the winning percentage of God's called? How joyful are the team players who all know that they were only brought onto this team because God placed a call on them to be there. You know, now I've got my metaphors all mixed up this morning. There's a mountain peak and there's a soccer team. But can you kind of see it in your mind's eye? Can you kind of see it? It's as if Paul is taking the whole soccer team of God's elect up the mountain peak of God's calling. And he's saying here, stand with me and look out at the view of God's calling from here. Glorious, isn't it? Certain, isn't it? And we could say, we could, we, we could stay on this mountain peak forever. But we can see in the text that Paul heads off to mountain peak number two. And he turns from knowing the past about God's calling 
to knowing the present and the future of his inheritance in the saints. Peak number two in your notes, God's inheritance. Let's go there. Peak number two in your peak number two for us to look at and consider God's inheritance. Every year it's the case that Angela and I, for the last 15, have taken our kids camping. Without fail, the kids find a treasure map that leads to a box of buried treasures. And I can't express to you the intensity of the moment when the box is about to be flipped open. What riches lay inside? What treasures await? That's the same kind of anticipation that we should have as we climb with Paul up the second peak of God's knowledge. You see peak number two at verse 18 in the text as well where Paul says that you may know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Are are we considering this riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints? Are we considering this like a treasure box? And there's a lid, (laughs) and we have to flip this lid and find out what is... What is inside? Now, we talked about this two weeks ago, so you, you can listen to the inheritance message then, but there's, we're going to talk the same thing right now so you can see this inheritance as well because you need to understand from Paul, Paul is so desirous to tell you how rich God is. In chapters 1 through 3 of his letter to the Ephesians, he uses this word for rich. He uses it five times. These are all the indicatives. These are all these statements of facts, and in three chapters, five times, he speaks of the riches of God. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7, and chapter 2, verse 7, he, he speaks about the riches of God's grace. In chapter 3, verse 8, he speaks about the unfathomable riches of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 16, he speaks of the riches of God's glory. And here, Paul marches us up to the mountain of God's inheritance in the saints. Or should I say that he marches us back up here? to the mountain of God's glorious inheritance of the saints because we saw this two weeks ago in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 1. Paul discusses God's inheritance that we have, the, the blessing of our inheritance that is sealed in the Holy Spirit. And remember at that time, two weeks ago, I told you about Pastor John MacArthur and, and how he describes this inheritance, and I want to share that with you again. He says that this inheritance that we have is every promise that God ever made, period. Including peace, Love, grace, wisdom, eternal life. Joy, strength, guidance, comfort. All your needs met. Power, knowledge, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, justification in his sight. Gifts of the Spirit, including the opportunity to suffer trouble and pain and suffering in this life. We also have the fellowship of the Trinity, instruction from the Word of God, truth, spiritual discernment, heaven, a room in the Father's house, a banquet feast set before us, the supper, of the marriage supper of the Lamb set right in heaven for you, eternal riches, you name it, you've got it in your inheritance in Christ. Certainly, you have all of these for eternity when you die and pass through the veil of this life and go into heaven to be with God forever. And that in of itself is glorious. It's a glorious thought that the the future aspect of this inheritance, but brothers and sisters, I'm genuinely convinced that Paul is concerned with the here and now. He wants to present to you your inheritance now. That's what this whole letter is about, is your inheritance now. Where is your inheritance right here, right now? I'm asking you. You tell me where's your inheritance. In your mind, take these five words, his inheritance in the saints, and if you can, quickly con- con- Compress that down. Reduce that down to one word. What was 
word, would you compress down his inheritance and the saints to? The only word that could come to my mind when I pressed those words together, the one word that just jumped out of this text at me over and over again is the word church. Church. In my mind, these five words reduce down to church. We, the church, are certainly God's inheritance. That is absolutely the case. And yet in another sense, the church is our inheritance. And I believe that that is what Paul is praying for us, that we would lift the lid of the treasure box called the church and see her riches that we would climb the mountain peak of God's inheritance in the saints and take in the view of all her glory, all the joy and all the blessing to be had in the fellowship of the local church that Jesus Christ is powerfully building that he died on that cross at Calvary to purchase. Is this your life? Do you rejoice in the church? Are you a member of a church? Are you an occasional attender? I sure hope that you are not a pretender in the church. Thomas Watson reminds us that everyone that hangs around the court of the king does not speak to the king. So the question is, do you love the church or do you play church? When have you verbally affirmed your commitment to a church? Is it the case, Hebrews 13, 17, that you find yourself in submission to the elders appointed over you in the church? I think on this past year, Those who love the church this past year has been incredibly hurtful. What has this season of COVID 2020 done to your desire to be found in the church and in fellowship? Doesn't your heart just burn to be here? Are you not just thrilled to be in the the household of God with the saints? It should. Your heart should burn to be here. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon retells his love for the church in his pursuit of membership. You want to pursue membership? Pursue it like Charles Spurgeon. He did this. He says, I well remember how I joined the church after my conversion. I forced myself into into it by telling the minister, who was lax and slow, pray God that I'm not lax and slow with you. I forced myself into it by telling the minister, who was lax and slow, after I had called on him four or five times and could not see him, that I had done my duty. And if he would not see me, I would call a church meeting myself and tell them, I believe in Christ, and ask them if they would not have me. Spurgeon was blessed to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance of the saints. What zeal for membership. Don't you love that? What a great story. It should be the case that the church is the highlight of your week. And Brother Larry just prayed that for all of us before this service started, that this would be the highlight of your week. Think about it. What joy attends your heart in being greeted by brothers and sisters in Christ with a warm smile, a handshake, and a hug? How many of the folks that we have here can actually see the tear on the backside of your eye and might know that you need to walk to the side and have a special conversation because something last week trashed you? We've got a number of people that will do that for you. What joy is it to lift your voice together with the saints creating our own local choir offering praise to the heights of heaven and to think that our prayers today have already been incense to God? You know, you can't do the songs that Nathan and Claire led us in by Zoom. We tried. You can't do it. It just doesn't work. It's not meant for Zoom. What joy is there in having your pastor preach and march you up a well-worn path in Scripture, taking you to incredible mountain peaks of God's riches and treasures and glories in Christ. Did you have something better to do today? Did you have something better to do? Uh, Not a chance. 
Dwight L. Moody says, church attendance is as vital to a disciple of Christ as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood to a sick man, to a sick man. James Montgomery Boyce says, we know little enough of the blessings of God that he has for us here. Blessings like prayer, Bible study, the joys of Christian fellowship, meaningful work in service to Christ in the church, and the participation in the sacraments, which we will be taking in just a few moments. you're a believer in Jesus, how can you keep his commands outside the church? Take that one home, will you? How can you keep his commands if you're outside the church? Where could you ever find joy, comfort, peace, and love in this life except in his church? Knowledge of the riches of his church is where Paul takes us as the second mountain peak in his prayer, that we have the knowledge of God First, we need to know God's calling, which is in salvation. Second, we need to know God's inheritance of the saints, which is in the church. And finally, we come to the last mountain peak of Paul's prayer for knowledge in your notes. Peak number three, God's power. Peak number three in your notes, God's power, the third peak. Let's read the text again and see mountain peak number three of God's knowledge that we as believers need to know to secure our identity in God's calling and fix our eyes on Christ. Paul says that you may know, verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. The surpassing greatness of his power. This is mountain peak number three. It is the tallest, it is the grandest, it is the most glorious view of all these three mountain peaks that measure up to the knowledge of God that Paul prays that these believers would know. Harold Honer says that Paul heaps one word on another to express the greatness of God's power that is available to believers. The Greek word hooperbalon means to throw over or beyond a mark, to excel, to exceed and surpass. The word megathos, you, you can hear that in your own mind, mega, great in size, great in magnitude, great in importance. And then this word dunamis. Dunamis is inert power, ability, capability of acting. Famed Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel made explosives in the 1860s and sold them under the name dynamite. Don't import this meaning onto Paul's understanding of a God's power. Nobel slapped on his product. Paul is not saying God's power is explosive. Rather, he goes on to say that God's power is seen in a person. And you'll see this if we keep reading in verse eight, 19 and 20. What is God's greatest display of power? It's power that is displayed according to the working of the strength of his might, which he worked, energized, brought about in Christ. Do you know this power? Do you know this power? Look at all these words stacked up on top of one another. His working, his strength, his might, his bringing about, his energizing, his dunamis, his inert power, the, greatness, the, the greatest display of God's power is that he fully energized and projected his purposes in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. What would that include? All right here in the prayer. It, in climbing this peak, Paul climbs all the way up to the absolute fullness of the power of God in Christ, including Jesus' substitutionary sacrificial death on a cross, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and position of Christ over everything, including the church. God's power is absolutely best seen in Christ. 
And we'll study that in depth in just a couple weeks. Right now, we have need to consider for whom was God's power displayed? For whom did he do this? Who was it directed toward? Who needs to see the power of God in Christ? You do. You need to see it. And Paul prays that we would know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Literally, Paul says, toward us, the believing ones. And I want you to hear the certainty of Paul in this prayer request, in addition to the love of God shown in the power of Christ. Can you fathom the that God's greatest display of power had a dual purpose that included us. That's, that's, that's silly talk, people. That's silly talk. The greatness of his power displayed, and it included us. First, he displayed his power in Christ for his own glory. Amen. Hallelujah. Please do that over and over again, Father. And yet we understand also, second, that his infinitely perfect mind, God tied together our election, calling, and redemption, and our inheritance in this one peak performance of his power. Glory of glories, mystery of mysteries. God Almighty, how did you do that? Power in Christ directed at us, power that cleanses us from all sin. Consider the height of the glory in this view from mountain, this third mountain peak of God's knowledge that Paul is praying for, God's power. You're sitting on the mountain of God's power in verse 19, in verse 20. Wow. This is a 30,000-foot view of the power of God that gives you identity, it gives you worldview, it gives you certainty, it gives you what did we start out looking for in prayer. This knowledge gives you relationship, if you understand it. The glory of these verses are a treasure all the days of our lives to us. We will never exhaust them in our understanding. It's no wonder that the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before God and His Son in Revelation 5.8. Such incredible power, such unfathomable glory, such grace given to us. Paul prays that this third and highest peak of God's knowledge would come to us, the believing ones, to these Ephesians, the believing ones. Yes, the Bible does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge makes arrogant and knowledge can puff you up. Not this knowledge, not this knowledge. This is the knowledge that humbles Because this is the knowledge that says you, you are nothing. And God, he is everything. That's what this knowledge says. This knowledge is too high for you. And it requires God allow you to receive it. It's not something you will ever achieve in your own strength. But I can tell you how you get it. It arrives by grace of God and prayer. Knowledge of God's calling, God's inheritance in the saints, and God's power. These three mountain peaks are the blessings of superior knowledge that Paul prays for the Ephesian believers after he told them about it, and then he prays God doesn't act on them, that they definitely receive it. And he knows they will because God's already illuminated these things to them. How do you respond to the prayer and to these three peaks of knowledge? First, you pray. You pray. Talk to God. Ask him to take you back up to these three peaks of his knowledge, his calling, his inheritance, his power. Ask him to bury these truths so deeply into your heart and your mind that you live in great confidence and certainty of your salvation just like Paul. There are days when you are afflicted in your thinking. Your frailty is known every day to you and all of the rest of us know it as well. Don't hide from it. You have fear. Anxiety, worry, doubt, guilt, shame, grief, trouble, suffering, loss, pain. It's all over you all the time. That's what this world is. And yet here is power to overcome. Do you pray to God? 
and ask him what all those trials and what all those troubles are for. Do you pray to God? Second, pray this prayer for the church. You know, know somebody. Know somebody in the church. Love somebody. Relate to somebody. Have a relationship to the extent that you have brothers and sisters praying this for you. But before you ask someone else to pray this for you, you pray this for somebody else. Get to know someone's name. Pray for the believers that you meet on Sunday and those in your community group. Go to the community groups. Participate. Participate in the youth group and pray for one another. You need to pray for one another. Receive those requests and pray this prayer for the brothers and sisters that you have in Christ. The effects of these prayers are so powerful, they will build a body of Christ at Community Bible Church that is united. And then third, I would tell you this. In case something was missing in my presentation today, in case something is not making sense in Paul's argumentation in Ephesians 1, third, I would tell you, I would tell you personally, your responsibility, I would tell you, search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Allow the other letters of Paul, allow John, allow James, allow Peter to inform your understanding about your calling. All of the Testaments, the New and the Old, their authors declare to you the power of God and salvation and giving an eternal inheritance. And all of this is found in the power of Christ. And again, gain confidence in the Scriptures. They are God's Word and they defend themselves. Friend, perhaps this is the first time that you're hearing any of this. And it's confronting you. And you think, what is this stuff that he's talking about, the calling of God? I want an inheritance. Do I want God's inheritance? Maybe you're asking yourself, what is the power of God? These are great questions. I hope your mind continues to ask them, continues to ask them. I would just simply tell you this. If you're confused about the things that I've said today, the things that we've read from Scripture, the things that I've explained to you from Paul, that Paul's saying to you, if you're confused about it, I would tell you this. God's power in Christ is that he saves sinners who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. And I would then ask you this question. Do you know that you are a sinner? Do you need to repent of your sins even today, this very moment, this hour? Are you finding that God is causing you to believe? Jesus Christ died to pay for sins. Did he die to pay for your sins? I ask that you not leave today without coming and talking and asking these questions. Friend, the blessing of superior knowledge is free. Don't leave today without it. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what wonderful truths abound in Scripture that give us confidence and certainty in your ability and not our own. Father, we thank you so much and we treasure these truths just incredibly richly in our lives to see what you have done, the magnificence of the work that you have done to call unregenerate people and make us play on your team. Get all the glory out of us that you need, Father. Take these truths and bury them into our minds and allow us to reflect on them even now as we turn to a time of communion and we think about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. His blood shed for us and his body broken. Let us remember this together in an incredible celebration as we take communion together now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.